Good morning. I, uh, I've heard this morning from our team that is in Guatemala. Uh, they arrived yesterday and got settled in, and they are worshiping this morning, uh, even as we are worshiping here. And so uh, let me remind you to, um, to make them a focus of your prayer time this week as they are doing a variety of ministries in Guatemala, and we'll be there all this week, and uh, and it's just uh, it, it's it's cool to me when I when I hear from somebody that's going into church for, to to worship the same time that we're going into church to worship because it reminds me that that there are faithful churches led by faithful leaders across the globe that make their way on Sunday morning to enter into the throne room of grace. And we're, it's not just us. We're not the only ones. We're a part of something vast and massive. And that's kind of cool. So remember to pray for our team as they're ministering in, in Guatemala this week. I'm in a series of lessons entitled Enduring Passions. Passion meaning it's not simply a, a passing fancy. It's not just something that that I'm sort of interested in. Passion meaning it is something that I've given myself to. It's something that is in the very core of my being as, as a, a characteristic of who I am. Enduring meaning it's not come and go. It's not as I feel like it. Meaning that it is a passion that is with me and is a part of me uh, all the time. The motto of our church is knowing God, sharing life, and changing the world. You might say, well, all three of those are pretty ambitious statements. Absolutely, they are. In fact, all three of those are absolutely impossible to do apart from the revelation of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Those are prerequisites. But we've seen that knowing God uh, starts with two words, worship and obey. Worship is what we do when we come before the throne of grace, when we present ourselves, when we offer to Him a gift of, of, of praise not that there's anything lacking in God, but, but we offer him something not to make him more of something, but to acknowledge on our part who he is. Obey, that's discipleship. That's when we immerse ourselves in the word of God until it becomes implanted in us and it begins to play itself out in a Christ-likeness that can only happen because we, uh, we see his word lived out through us by the spirit that is in us. Then we, we switched from knowing God to the middle part of that, of that motto, sharing life. And last week, we looked at the first word of sharing life, which was the word give. Um, let me tell you something. That was such an incredible day last week. Um, man, I, I just all this week, I've just been moved every time I, I think about it to, to be able to preach on giving and have God show up and do church. Um, oh, by the way, it really, the significance for me was not any dollar amount. The significance to me was the spontaneity of the giving. Remember, we talked about two ways of giving. One is spontaneous. That's when God leads you to do something that that morning when you got up out of bed, you didn't know you were going to do that day. You meet a need, you see an opportunity, and you give spontaneously. But there's also, and it's just as biblical, there's also planned giving. And I've called the church to a great day of giving on the first Sunday of December. 
six months from now, a runway time to plan. I've asked you to consider giving uh, the largest single day gift that you've ever given in your life. One of our, one of our men came to me last Sunday and he said, Pastor, he, he said, I, I, I had some money come in and, uh, it was, and, and I decided to use it for the church. And last Sunday, I gave the largest gift I've ever given in my life. I said, well, what, what are you going to do? And he goes, I'm going to suck it up and work from now until December to, <laughs> to top it. See, that's planned giving. That's a remarkable thing. The dollar amount was not important. It was the act of giving. But just so that you'll know, the dollar amount was right at $7,300. That's what we had in our pockets that we brought that day. And God moved among us to give spontaneously. That's a powerful thing, planned giving and spontaneous giving. It's a way that we share life. But this morning, I want to come to the second word in that segment of, of our motto, sharing life. The word today is love. Now, I, 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 I prayed about how to do this because the word love itself is um, so abused in our generation. I mean, it's sentimental, it's sappy, it's syrupy. That's not the biblical concept of love at all. And, and as I really began to see how, how I could, could illustrate this, God took me to a little one-page postcard in the Bible. It's a book called Philemon. Now, chances are you've maybe never heard anybody teach on the book of Philemon. It's, it's only 25 verses. It's sort of tucked away. In fact, it prints on a single page probably in your Bible. It's real easy to just blow past it and never even see it. Maybe you've never even read it. I want to teach from the book of Philemon today, but I want to start by setting up the story of what's behind this little postcard. There was, in, in the ancient church, there was a church in the city of Colossae. Colossae was the church that, that um, received the letter from the Apostle Paul that we call Colossians. It was to that church in the city of Colossae. And, and in Colossae, there was a man of some wealth, uh, some standing in the community who had become a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. And he provided his home as the meeting place for that first church that was planted in that city. His name was Philemon. Now Philemon was a man of, as I say, some substance, including the fact that in his business life, whatever that was, he had at least one slave that we know of whose name was Onesimus. Now, let me, let me pause right here because as Americans, when we hear the word slave, when we talk about slavery, we see in our minds the worst uh, scenarios possible of, of physical abuse and, and, and deprivation and, and, and all kinds of horrendous human behavior against other human beings. Roman slavery was, was a different kind of slavery. It typically was somebody that, for whatever reason, was in debt in a significant way. And so they would sell themselves into service, if you will, for a set amount of time. And that service was to pay off their debt. 
Now, there were some slaves in the Roman world that were prisoners of war that had been captured by Roman armies that traveled from here, from here to there. But slaves in, in the Roman world were often highly educated. They were employees of the family business with some significant level of responsibility. They were the accountants and the, and, and the shopkeepers and, and, and people of, um, of business acumen. Philemon was a man of some means, and he had a slave by the name of Onesimus. We don't know if Onesimus was a slave because he had been in debt, and he had to make himself uh, in some sort of bond service to get out of debt, or whether he was a slave that had been sold out of, um, out of military conquest. But we do know this. He was probably in service for a period of time, and this slave, Onesimus, uh, reneged on his obligation. He bailed before his commitment was complete, and Onesimus the slave ran away from his owner, a man by the name of Philemon who lived in the city of Colossae. Now, if you're a slave in the ancient world, the best thing that you could do to stay undiscovered is go straight to Rome. Rome is the largest city in the world, the greatest population of the world in that day. Uh, it was a city where slaves actually comprised about 40 to 45 percent of the population of the city. So his appearance wouldn't have worked against him. He could go to Rome and he could disappear in plain sight. Only God had a providential plan for this slave by the name of Onesimus that he was unaware of. He went to Rome and in a city of uh, of, uh, of hundreds of thousands of citizens, he crossed paths with an odd sort of fellow by the name of Paul. He meets Paul, and in conversation, apparently over a period of time, Paul introduces Onesimus to another man, a man named Jesus. Onesimus becomes a follower of Jesus, and as such becomes, guess what? A servant or a slave to the Apostle Paul. Only now it's completely different. He's not a pagan who's serving in a pagan way. He's a believer who's standing in loyalty beside Paul, serving the cause of Christ out of a loyalty for what God has done in his heart. It's an incredible story, but it gets even better. Paul knew Philemon, his Onesimus' owner, very well hosting the church in Colossae, a leader in that church, probably a leader in the, in the whole city. And, 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 and in some, somewhere along the way, Onesimus comes to the conclusion that I have to go back to Colossae and make this right. Paul said, yeah, that's what you need to do. Now see, right here, we've already seen a twist that the world could never come up with. This is the gospel at work transforming a heart. Here's a pagan slave who runs away from his master only to, be, to become a Christian himself and then come to the conclusion that he needs to go back to Colossae and make things right because he reneged on his obligation. He bailed before he had paid off his debt. And so he goes back to Colossae to ask forgiveness, now a Christian, to ask forgiveness of his Christian master. Paul sends a little postcard letter with him, the letter to Philemon. And it is Paul's appeal to Philemon. It's Paul's letter appealing to Philemon to prove 
the reality of the gospel. See, what we have here is a runaway pagan slave who returns as a Christian slave to a Christian master. And Paul is going to write this little letter, and basically he's going to say, we have a test case here. Either the gospel works here in this incredible moment, or it doesn't work at all. You see, part of the credibility of the gospel for 2,000 years has been the unlikeliest of friendships that have developed because there is a common bond in Jesus Christ. You see, whether it was, whether it was the, the two sides of the Irish, uh, the Protestant-Catholic war in, in, in Northern Ireland, uh, Chuck Colson, one of his books, relays the story of two men who came to Christ and worked toward bringing reconciliation to an entire community because they became friends. You see, unlikely friendship is one of the evidences that the gospel transforms us in ways that we could never do. You see, we, we talk about church. We use family terms for church. It's interesting. We, we, call, we say, well, this is my church family. Well, we don't use brother and sister so much like we used to, but when I was a kid... Everybody in the church where I grew up, it was brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so, we actually used family language to describe the, the relationship that we had. Now, now the modern church, is, the contemporary church has kind of gotten away from that, but the reality of, of the fact is we have a weak understanding of the gospel if we view our church family as merely a collection of individuals who happen to show up at the same place on the same day so that we can sort of stand in proximity with each other and go through the motions of doing church. That is not sharing life. There are plenty of churches where you just go and stand and, and, and you sing and you listen and then you leave and, and, and you had no real interaction with everybody. We can't afford to be that church. You see, the gospel assembles a family now, it's an odd family. I mean, it's people with different backgrounds. It's people that have come from different geographical locations. It's people that have come with different cultural ideas. We use different words. Our slang is different. We're from all over the region. We're from all over the country. There are people in this church who are from all over the world. But we share one thing in common. And it is an unshakable thing that we share. And that is that we are bonded together by the Spirit of God through what Jesus Christ has done in each one of us. What Jesus does is he saves us. And he fills us with himself. Then he puts us with people, some like us, some not like us. And he says, all right, here is, here's where it happens. Here's where iron sharpens iron. Here's where you practice the process of becoming Christ-like in the context of real-world people who have real-world issues and, and who are messy uh, and, and who struggle with their own set of, of issues. This is where I put you because as you share life together, not as you just attend church together, as you share life together, I'm going to shape both ends of that interaction. And make you something you could never be without the process. The book of Philemon, um, 
we, we, we don't have time to do 25 verses. But let's just look at, at the way Paul talks about love. And it's not syrupy and mushy and sweet. It's practical. It's hardcore. It's built on a determination to let what God is doing in me impact you and to let what God is doing in you impact me so that both of us are strengthened and made more like Jesus in the process. All right? Let's go to the first verse of, of, of Philemon. If, you, if you're having trouble finding it, it's between Titus and Hebrews. Probably on one page. You're going to have to hunt for it. Philemon, this, this, first starts, this book starts with what I've called the privilege of belonging. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting, this is just the address of the letter, but like all of Paul's letters, the address itself is cont contains some information that's important for us to pay attention to. Paul starts by saying, this letter comes from Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. This is the only place in the New Testament that Paul uses this designation in any of his letters. Usually, Paul is writing from a position as an apostle. He is an apostle. He's been commissioned by the church in Antioch. He's been sent out by the church in Jerusalem. He has the authority to travel from place to place to establish new churches. He appoints elders to lead those new churches when he goes there. He has a position of authority in the church at large that is recognized by everybody wherever he goes. Only now he's writing this letter about this test case. Paul's going to say it's no use preaching a grand-sounding theory if Christianity cannot change personal relationships. See, that's why it's so crucial that a church not be marked by rivalries and divisions and factions because that is the very antithesis of what a church is supposed to be. Listen, I've pastored, I've pastored that church. The one that has this group that sits over here and this group that sits over here that hadn't talked to this group in 12 years. And they're both mad at this group that sits over here because, because of something silly that probably none of them can remember. And they're still, they're not going to give up the church because this is my church. No, it's not your church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. You have a privilege to even sit in this church. And you're here because God filled you up with his presence and he brought you into this place and he deployed you here. But he did not deploy you here to take sides, to, to create positions, to, to have factions or rivalries. You see, Paul is not coming to Philemon with authority. He's coming by saying, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul was in jail when he wrote this letter. And he's coming to Philemon to say, listen, you can't make the right decision about this situation that I'm going to present to you based on me and, and my authority telling you what to do. You have to make this decision to be right with, with a brand new Christian brother simply because the spirit that is in you compels you to pursue reconciliation within the family. Folks, I can, I can harp at you all day long, but, but if you're at odds with somebody in the church... I can't make you get right with that person. But I'm here to tell you 
you have an obligation as a follower of Jesus to get right with that person because the church is compromised. The gospel is compromised. If we don't put on display a supernatural unity that comes because we are perpetually working to be reconciled to each other so that nothing ever creates a wedge that can hinder what happens in the body of Christ. Paul doesn't come as an authority. He says, I'm merely a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm just writing to you what I hope you will see to do. He says, I'm writing to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker. Philemon, a man of wealth and importance in Colossae, the host of the church in that city. I'm writing to Aphia, almost certainly Philemon's wife. I'm writing to Archippus, probably their son who was actively involved in the ministry as well. But then he says, and I'm writing to the church in your house. You see, the message of forgiveness and reconciliation that Paul is going to write in this letter is meant for the entire faith community. This is not just something between Philemon and Onesimus. This has a ripple effect about how the gospel creates the family that we call the church and an even greater ripple effect about how the gospel is seen by those outside the church. Even Jesus said, they'll know you, they'll know your mind because of the way you love one another. You see, when the church is at odds with each other, when we have factions and rivalries, what we've done is we've put on display to the church, to the world, that the church is no different. They know about hostility. Spend five minutes on social media and you know about hostility. We live in a culture that hides behind a keyboard and perpetually throws grenades at one another. They don't need that. The part of Christianity that is most attractive to a broken and fractured and, and a hostile culture, the part of Christianity that is most attractive is the aspect of fellowship that the church offers. Now, let me talk about that word. Fellowship is a word that... Um, that has really, in English, it has lost some of its power. We translate a Greek word, koinonia, with the English word fellowship. But that has become less and less theologically sound in recent decades because we've allowed the English word fellowship to degenerate into just a Saturday night Sunday school social. Say, so, well, we're going to... We're going to go to a ball game, and, or we're going, to, we're going to have a game night, or we're going, to, we're going to do some stuff, and we're going to fellowship. Now, there's nothing wrong with going to a ball game with, with Christian friends. There's nothing wrong with a, inviting people over for a game night or, or, or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that aspect of fellowship, but you need to understand that's not some total of what that word koinonia means. It means that we're so deeply invested in life together that it's natural for us to be together because our lives are intertwined. That's why it's actually an embarrassment to the church to be filled with people who show up in one place as individuals and sort of do their thing together and then leave as individuals not to see or contact each other the whole rest of the week. That's not a church. That's kind of a religious exercise. The church is built on fellowship. 
It means shared life. But it means, it means intertwined, interconnected life. Occasionally I run into somebody that says, Oh, I, I'd like to come visit your church, but man, it's just so big. I say, well, here's the thing. The good news is, you don't have to know a thousand people when you come to church here. In fact, is there anybody in the room that says, I know everybody here. I know all the names of all the people in all the rows. Not, not even a pastor. Not even a pastor. No. Here's the thing. You don't have to know the names of a thousand people. What you need, though, is you need to have a dozen people that you're interconnected with you're entwined with you do life together they know what's going on in your life you know what's going on in their life you pray for them they pray for you that's who you see when you come to church a church feels like family see see sunday morning worship in a church this size that's more like your your you know every 10 years family reunion you know lots of people there you don't know Lots of people there that, that you get to know, you introduce yourself, and there's a family connection, but, but you, you, you try and find out some things about each other. Okay, that's what happens here a lot on Sunday mornings. There's a family connection, but we don't know everybody, but you, you meet new people, and you, and you get to know them, and you ask them questions, but there's got to be a core group of people. Maybe it's your life group. Maybe it's your Sunday school class. Maybe it's a ministry team that you're, a, that you're a part of here. There have to be a dozen or so lives that you're deeply intertwined with. That's fellowship. Now, why, why, why do I give you that? Because that's how Paul is going to speak of love. We know, we know that biblical love is not syrupy and mushy and sappy. It's, it's a decision. It's an action. Paul's going to frame that action of intentional uh, love toward one another. He's going to put it in terms of fellowship. Uh, I called this first point uh, the privilege of belonging, but the second point is the prayer of blessing. All right, look at this. Beginning in verse 4, he says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for the sake of Christ. For I have had great joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. Okay, first of all, love is generated by faith. Paul says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. I hear of your love and the faith that brings that love to all the saints. Here's what he's saying. He's telling, he's telling Philemon that when I pray for you, I'm encouraged because your faith, your simple trust in Jesus, your reliance on him in all things, plays itself out toward all the saints that are in your church. Now, I love that word saints. That's another English word that we treat poorly. We think that a saint is like a super Christian. In fact, we're tempted to say sometimes, well, I'm not a saint. Well, if Jesus lives in you, yes, you are. You see, the saints includes all of God's people, both the weak and the strong, both the erring and the righteous. 
he wanted Philemon to understand that I've seen you treat all the believers in a way that involves the practical love that comes from your faith. Your faith expresses itself in actions of love toward other people. And they, they, those people aren't marked by any uh, special standing. It's not that they have something that, that you can get from them. You just love them because they are God's people. Because of the way you've already acted, Philemon, I want you to understand, you already know that no believer should be excluded from the circle of Christian love. So now I'm sending you a new Christian, not just a pagan slave that you lost. I'm sending you back a Christian brother that will now serve you in a whole different way. You lost a pagan slave who never served you except in a heathen way. I'm returning a Christian slave who comes back impelled by his Christian conscience to make good his past acts and now to serve alongside you as a Christian. He says, I want you to, I want you to have a fellowship with him. The ability... Fellowship simply means the ability to laugh or to cry with others. It's vital to the health or success of a church. I, I read a writer recently who, who, I just want to read you one paragraph from, from his article. He says, the neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. It's an imitation, dispensing alcohol instead of grace, escape rather than reality, but it is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. It is democratic. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved, and so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. You see, the neighborhood bar wouldn't even need to exist if the neighborhood church was a place of fellowship, of lives shared together, intertwined, living out the difficulties of our days shoulder to shoulder. Well, that love is activated, it's generated by faith, but it's activated in sanctification. Look at verse 6. He says, and I pray that the fellowship, there's that word, I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for the sake of Christ Jesus. The development of Christian fellowship, frankly, requires that God demands different things from different people. You see, one of the beauties of the church is that we're not all alike. Now, that's where some of the tension comes in, but that's also the beauty that comes in with variety. We don't have the same... Uh, skills. We don't have the same interests. We don't have the same uh, backgrounds. And yet, when God calls us, he's taking us to the same place, which is Christ-likeness, but he gets us there by requiring different things from different ones of us. When, when, my, when my children were little and, and somebody would get in trouble, they'd say, well, what about him? Or what about her? Well, his punishment, her punishment, that's not your business. We're talking about you. See, I didn't punish my children in exactly the same ways because the same punishment didn't work in the same ways. They were different 
Incentives were different. Disincentives were different. The church is that way too. And, and we, we can't let the culture out there screaming about how everything needs to be fair all the time. We can't let that infect the church because the fact of the matter is God requires different things of us depending on what he needs to accomplish in our individual lives and depending on what he's accomplishing in the church as a whole. For example, in this letter, what God is requiring of Onesimus is he has to abandon his fear of returning to Colossae and he has to be humble enough to ask for forgiveness. What God, is demand, what God is asking of Philemon is very different. He doesn't need to abandon fear. He needs to abandon a pridefulness that will lash out because he's been embarrassed by a slave who ran away. And he's being asked to extend forgiveness. One asks forgiveness, one extends forgiveness, one has to abandon fear, the other has to abandon pride. They're different requirements because God is creating something here that requires different things from different people. Fellowship is simply walking in a way that makes us more like Christ out of the common bond that we share of the Holy Spirit of God that's in us. Paul says, I, 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 want, you to have the, I want you to have a faith that becomes effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you. Every good thing, that's not a theoretical understanding of, of, of doctrine. That's an operational grasp of what God did in Jesus and what he wants to do in us. God's at work in you. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, you might say, well, I'm not real good at it or, or I need to get better at it. Fine. That's exactly what God wants you to do. If you come to God and say, I'm not very good at this, could you, you know... Make me more like Jesus. You know what happens with that prayer request? There's a cheer that goes up in heaven. When do we know our prayers will be answered? Every time we pray a prayer that is in harmony with what God already wants to do. He wants us to be like Jesus. And the church is the place that he's established for that to happen. But it is, it's called, the, the process is called sanctification. Personal sanctity or holiness is not very popular today. I mean, even in most churches, the church is concerned with social issues. It's concerned with, with spiritual gifts. It's concerned with counseling for good marriages or for career fulfillment. You can have classes that help you lose weight. You can jog and get physically fit, all for Jesus, of course. One writer put it this way. He said, we need a daily dose of purgatory. Now, I, I don't believe in, in the doctrine of purgatory, but I understand what he was saying. He was saying that God puts us through the things that, that are difficult because it's in those realms that he shapes us to be more like Jesus. We want instead a sort of heavenly hypodermic where God just gives us the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, I need more love. Zip. Wow, there I'm overflowing with love. That's not the way it works. It works because God puts you intentionally in a family, and he says, all right, let's go out and let's practice love. You ever prayed for patience? Oh, Lordy. Here's what. I don't know what you're thinking. God doesn't just rain patience down on you. When you pray for patience, you know what happens? God goes, all right, let's go to church. 
I'm going to put you next to some people that you're going to have to develop some patience with. That's what the church is. It's this, it's this Petri dish where God keeps us because he's developing us. What's he developing us for? The Bible says he's developing us to reign, to have authority, to be leaders in eternity. How do you learn to do that? See, it, it, we have this idea that when you get saved and baptized, that's like scoring a touchdown. You score your touchdown and you kick the extra point. Then you go sit on the sidelines and you wait until it's time to get on the team bus and go home. That is not the Christian life. We, we don't score the touchdown and we're done with our part of the game when we come out of the waters of baptist, baptistry. If that was the fact, as soon as we baptize you, God could just zap us up to heaven because we we'd be done. No, we get out of the waters of baptism and we come into the church and then we begin the process of being developed to be like Jesus. Getting saved and baptized, that's not the, that's not the winning touchdown. That's just the kickoff. That's when the game starts. That's when the process of becoming like Jesus really begins to happen. And we are here. And good, bad, or ugly, we are here together. Because you have the job of helping me be more like Jesus. And I have the job of helping you be more like Jesus. And we are shoulder to shoulder in this process. Sometimes it's, it's hard. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes not so much. But here's why we stay after it. Here's why you humble yourself and ask for forgiveness when you're at odds with another person. Because the fact of the matter is, whether you're the one asking forgiveness or whether you're the one extending forgiveness, God asks different things of each of us at different times because he is making us more like Jesus. And the promise is one of these days, one of these days, we are going to see Jesus as he is because we will be like him. Listen, you want to know the best way? To get to be like Jesus, find a great church and throw yourself into it. See, this word fellowship, too many of us have this idea that fellowship is passive. That we just go to church and we just sort of soak up what happens around us. That is not what the word koinonia means. Biblical fellowship means you jump in with both feet. You invest yourself. You serve alongside people. You want to know, the, my experience as a pastor is the, the fastest way for people to quit complaining about the church and start loving the church is when they start serving side by side with people in the church. If you're, if you're unhappy about something going on around here, um, don't bother sending me an anonymous letter because I'm not going to read it. <laughs> but let me tell you, without even talking to me, the fastest way for you to get over that burr in your blanket is for you to jump in and start practic practically involving yourself and moving this church forward and serving Christ in a way that all of a sudden these irritations that are all around you now become people that you begin to love and have respect for. Folks, this is the word love. It's not syrupy, it's not sappy, it's not mushy, it's not even sentimental. It's practical, down and dirty, real. 
And it's motivated toward the, the community of faith. Verse 7, For I have had great joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. I love this. He says, this, the fellowship of your faith, the sharing of your faith. He's not talking about conversational evangelism. He's talking about mutual participation in the community of faith. The interchange between family members. You can't let this fellowship be passive, just taking benefits as they come. You become like an unused muscle that deteriorates in the body. Paul wants Philemon's fellowship to be energetic. He wants him to be actively involved in the life of the church, promoting unity. And when Philemon receives Onesimus, when Onesimus humbles himself as a Christian and asks for forgiveness, and Philemon humbles himself as a master and offers forgiveness, what happens is, I tell you, that church was going to experience something because they had just seen a tangible expression of the gospel at work, but not just that church. Let me tell you, everybody in Colossae was going to know. See, they knew that Onesimus had run away. They knew that Philemon had lost one of, his, one of his most important workers. And now here he comes back strolling into Colossae. He's not escorted by an armed Roman guard. He's just walking in by himself voluntarily. Are you mad? Yeah, I'm, I'm on my way to see Philemon. You can't go. Do you know what he'll do to you? It doesn't matter. You see, I've met Jesus Christ. And I have to humble myself and make right what I've done. And I need to ask for forgiveness. You have lost your freaking mind. Maybe so. But Jesus is in charge of my life now. And I've got to live in a way that doesn't make worldly sense. And Onesimus marches into church one day. And he presents the letter. And Philemon reads the letter. Probably read it out loud to the church. And in my mind, the way I see this unfolding is he steps over to Onesimus, waiting, and he embraces him. And the church said, we've never seen anything like it. And the city of Colossae said, We've never seen anything like it. And the proof of the gospel was in the reality of reconciled lives from very different people. You and I are displays of the reconciliation of the gospel.